Chapter Seven, Part Two, of the Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Voyage of the Beagle, by Charles Darwin, Chapter Seven, Part Two. When America, especially North America, possessed its elephants, mastodon, horses, and hollow-horned ruminants. It was much more closely related in its zoological characters to the temperate parts of Europe and Asia than it is now. As the remains of these genera are found on both sides of Bering Straits and on the plains of Siberia, we are led to look to the northwestern side of North America as the former point of communication between the old and so-called New World. And as to many species, both living and extinct, of these same genera inhabit and have inhabited the Old World, it seems most probable that the North American elephants, mastodons, horse and hollow-horned ruminants migrated on land since submerged near Bering's Straits from Siberia into North America, and thence on land since submerged in the West Indies into South America, where for a time they mingled with the forms characteristic of that southern continent and have since become extinct. While traveling through the country I received several vivid descriptions of the effects of a late great drought, and the account of this may throw some light on the cases where vast numbers of animals of all kinds have been embedded together. The period included between the years 1827 and 1830 is so called the Gran Seco, or the Great Drought. During this time, so little rain fell that the vegetation, even to the thistles, failed, the brooks were dried up, and the whole country assumed the appearance of a dusty high road. This was especially the case in the northern part of the province of Buenos Aires and the southern part of Santa Fe. Very great numbers of birds, wild animals, cattle, and horses perished from the want of food and water. A man told me that the deer used to come into his courtyard to the well, which he had been obliged to dig to supply his own family with water, and that the partridges had hardly strength to fly away when pursued. Footnote. In Captain Owen's surveying voyage, there is a curious account of the effects of a drought on the elephants at Benguela, west coast of Africa. A number of these animals had some time since entered the town, in a body to possess themselves of the wells, not being able to procure any water in the country. The inhabitants mustered when a desperate conflict ensued, which terminated in the ultimate discomfiture of the invaders, but not until they had killed one man and wounded several others. The town is said to have a population of nearly 3,000. Dr. Malcolmson informs me that during a great drought in India, the wild animals entered the tents of some troops at Ellore, and that a hare drank out of a vessel held by the adjutant of the regiment. The lowest estimation of the loss of cattle in the province of Buenos Aires alone was taken at one million head. A proprietor at San Pedro had previously to these years 20,000 cattle. At the end, not one remained. San Pedro is situated in the middle of the finest country, and even now abounds again with animals. Yet during the latter part of the Gran Seco, live cattle were brought in vessels, for the consumption of the inhabitants. The animals roamed from their estancias, and wandering far southward, were mingled together in such multitudes that a government commission was sent from Buenos Aires to settle the disputes of the owners. Sir Woodbine Parish informed me of another and very curious source of dispute. The ground being so long dry, such quantities of dust were blown about, that in this open country the landmarks became obliterated, and people could not tell the limits of their estates. I was informed by an eyewitness that the cattle in herds of thousands rushed into the piranha, and being exhausted by hunger they were unable to crawl up the muddy banks, and thus were drowned. 
The arm of the river which runs by San Pedro was so full of putrid carcasses that the master of a vessel told me that the smell rendered it quite impassable. Without doubt, several hundred thousand animals thus perished in the river. Their bodies, when putrid, were seen floating down the stream, and many, in all probability, were deposited in the estuary of the Plata. All the small rivers became highly saline, and this caused the death of vast numbers in particular spots, for when an animal drinks of such water, it does not recover. Azara describes the fury of the wild horses on a similar occasion, rushing into the marshes, those which arrived first being overwhelmed and crushed by those which followed. He adds that more than once he has seen the carcasses of upwards of a thousand wild horses thus destroyed. I noticed that the smaller streams in the Pampas were paved with a breccia of bones, but this probably is the effect of a gradual increase, rather than of the destruction of any one period. Subsequently to the drought of 1827 to 1832, a very rainy season followed which caused great floods. Hence it is almost certain that some thousands of the skeletons were buried by the deposits of the very next year. What would be the opinion of a geologist viewing such an enormous collection of bones of all kinds of animals and of all ages, thus embedded in one thick earthy mass? Would he not attribute it to a flood having swept over the surface of the land rather than to the common order of things? Footnote. These droughts, to a certain degree, seem to be almost periodical. I was told the dates of several others, and the intervals were about fifteen years. October 12th. I had intended to push my excursion further, but not being quite well, I was compelled to return by a balandra, or one-masted vessel, of about one hundred tons burden, which was bound to Buenos Aires. As the weather was not fair, we moored early in the day to a branch of a tree on one of the islands. The Parana is full of islands, which undergo a constant round of decay and renovation. In the memory of the master several large ones had disappeared, and others again had been formed and protected by vegetation. They are composed of muddy sand, without even the smallest pebble, and were then about four feet above the level of the river, but during the periodical floods they are inundated. They all present one character. Numerous willows and a few other trees are bound together by a great variety of creeping plants, thus forming a thick jungle. These thickets afford a retreat for capybaras and jaguars. The fear of the latter animal quite destroyed all pleasure in scrambling through the woods. This evening I had not proceeded a hundred yards before finding indubitable signs of the recent presence of the tiger. I was obliged to come back. On every island there were tracks, and as on the former excursion, Rasto de los Indios had been the subject of conversation, so in this was El Rastro del Tigre. The wooded banks of the great rivers appeared to be the favorite haunts of the jaguar, but south of the Plata I was told that they frequented the reeds bordering lakes. Wherever they are, they seem to require water. Their common prey is the capybara, so that it is generally said, where capybaras are numerous, there is little danger from the jaguar. Falconer states that near the southern side of the mouth of the Plata there are many jaguars, and that they chiefly live on fish. This account I have heard repeated. On the Piranha they have killed many woodcutters, and have even entered vessels at night. There is a man now living in the Bajada, who, coming up from below when it was dark, was seized on the deck. He escaped, however, with the loss of the use of one arm. When the floods drive these animals from the islands, they are most dangerous. I was told that a few years since a very large one found its way into a church at Santa Fe. Two padres entering one after the other were killed, and a third, who came to see what was the matter, escaped with difficulty. 
The beast was destroyed by being shot from a corner of the building which was unroofed. They commit also at these times great ravages among cattle and horses. It is said that they kill their prey by breaking their necks. If driven from the carcass, they seldom return to it. The gauchos say that the jaguar, when wandering about at night, is much tormented by the foxes yelping as they follow him. This is a curious coincidence with the fact that it is generally affirmed of the jackals accompanying in a similarly officious manner the East Indian tiger. The jaguar is a noisy animal, roaring much by night, and especially before bad weather. One day, when hunting on the banks of the Uruguay, I was shown certain trees to which these animals constantly recur for the purpose, as it is said, of sharpening their claws. I saw three well-known trees. In front the bark was worn smooth, as if by the breast of the animal, and on each side there were deep scratches, or rather grooves, extending in an oblique line nearly a yard in length. The scars were of different ages. A common method of ascertaining whether a jaguar is in the neighborhood is to examine these trees. I imagine this habit of the jaguar is exactly similar to one which may any day be seen in the common cat, as with outstretched legs and exerted claws it scrapes the leg of a chair, and I have heard of young fruit trees in an orchard in England having been thus much injured. Some such habit must also be common to the puma, for on the bare hard soil of Patagonia I have frequently seen scores so deep that no other animal could have made them. The object of this practice is, I believe, to tear off the ragged points of their claws, and not, as the gauchos think, to sharpen them. The jaguar is killed, without much difficulty, by the aid of dogs baying and driving him up a tree, where he is dispatched with bullets. Owing to bad weather, we remained two days at our moorings. Our only amusement was catching fish for our dinner. There were several kinds, and all good eating. A fish called the armado, a silurus, is remarkable from a harsh grating noise which it makes when caught by hook and line, and which can be distinctly heard when the fish is beneath the water. This same fish has the power of firmly catching hold of any object, such as the blade of an oar or the fishing line, with the strong spine both of its pectoral and dorsal fin. In the evening the weather was quite tropical, the thermometer standing at 79 degrees. Numbers of fireflies were hovering about, and the mosquitoes were very troublesome. I exposed my hand for five minutes, and it was soon black with them. I do not suppose there could have been less than fifty, all busy sucking. October 15th. We got under way and passed Punta Gorda, where there is a colony of tame Indians from the province of Misiones. We sailed rapidly down the current, but before sunset, from a silly fear of bad weather, we brought into a narrow arm of the river. I took the boat and rowed some distance up this creek. It was very narrow, winding, and deep. On either side a wall thirty or forty feet high, formed by trees intertwined with creepers, gave to the canal a singularly gloomy appearance. I saw here a very extraordinary bird, called the scissor-beak, Rheinchops nigra. It has short legs, webbed feet, extremely long pointed wings, and is about the size of a tern. The beak is flattened laterally, that is, in a plane at right angles to that of a spoonbill or duck. It is as flat and elastic as an ivory paper cutter, and the lower mandible, differing from every other bird, is an inch and a half longer than the upper. In a lake near Maldonado, from which the water had been nearly drained, and which, in consequence, swarmed with small fry, I saw several of these birds, generally in small flocks, flying rapidly backwards and forwards, close to the surface of the lake. They kept their bills wide open, and the lower mandible half buried in the water. Thus skimming the surface, they plowed it in their course. The water was quite smooth, and it formed a most curious spectacle to behold a flock, 
each bird leaving its narrow wake on the mirror-like surface. In their flight they frequently twist about with extreme quickness, and dexterously manage with their projecting lower mandible to plough up small fish, which are secured by the upper and shorter half of their scissor-like bills. This fact I repeatedly saw as, like swallows, they continued to fly backwards and forwards close before me. Occasionally, when leaving the surface of the water, their flight was wild, irregular, and rapid. They then uttered loud, harsh cries. When these birds are fishing, the advantage of the long primary feathers of their wings in keeping them dry is very evident. When thus employed, their forms resemble the symbol by which many artists represent marine birds. Their tails are much used in steering their irregular course. These birds are common far inland along the course of the Rio Parano. It is said that they remain here during the whole year and breed in the marshes. During the day they rest in flocks on the grassy plains at some distance from the water. Being at anchor, as I have said, in one of the deep creeks between the islands of the Piranha, as the evening drew to a close, one of these scissor-beaks suddenly appeared. The water was quite still, and many little fish were rising. The bird continued for a short time to skim the surface, flying its wild and irregular manner up and down the narrow canal, now dark with the growing night and the shadows of the overhanging trees. At Montevideo I observed that some large flocks during the day remained on the mud-banks at the head of the harbour, in the same manner as on the grassy plains near the Piranha, and every evening they took flight seaward. From these facts I suspect that the Rhinechops generally fishes by night, at which time many of the lower animals come most abundantly to the surface. Monsieur Lesson states that he has seen these birds opening the shells of the Mactray buried in the sandbanks on the coast of Chile. From their weak bills, with the lower mandible so much projecting, their short legs and long wings, it is very probable that this can be a general habit. In our course down the Piranha, I observed only three other birds, whose habits are worth mentioning. One is a small kingfisher, Sorile americana. It has a longer tail than the European species, and hence does not sit in so stiff and upright a position. Its flight also, instead of being direct and rapid, like the course of an arrow, is weak and undulatory, as among the soft-billed birds. It utters a low note, like the clicking together of two small stones. A small green parrot, Canurus marinus, with a grey breast, appears to prefer the tall trees on the islands to any other situation for its building place. A number of nests are placed so close together as to form one great mass of sticks. These parrots always live in flocks and commit great ravages on the cornfields. I was told that near Colonia, 2,500 were killed in the course of one year. A bird with a forked tail, terminated by two long feathers, Tyrannus savanna, and named by the Spaniards scissor tail, is very common near Buenos Aires. It commonly sits on a branch of the ombu tree, near a house, and thence takes a short flight in pursuit of insects, and returns to the same spot. When on the wing it presents in its manner of flight and general appearance a caricature likeness of the common swallow. It has the power of turning very shortly in the air, and in so doing opens and shuts its tail, sometimes in a horizontal or lateral, and sometimes in a vertical direction, just like a pair of scissors. October 16th. Some leagues below Rosario, the western shore of the Piranha is bounded by perpendicular cliffs, which extend in a line to below San Nicolas. Hence it more resembles a seacoast than that of a freshwater river. It is a great drawback to the scenery of the Piranha that, from the soft nature of its banks, the water is very muddy. The Uruguay, flowing through a granitic country, is much clearer, and where the two channels unite at the head of the Plata, 
the waters may for a long distance be distinguished by their black and red colors. In the evening, the wind being not quite fair, as usual we immediately moored, and the next day, as it blew rather freshly, though with a favoring current, the master was much too indolent to think of starting. At Bajada, he was described to me as hombre muy aflicto, a man always miserable to get on, but certainly he bore all delays with admirable resignation. He was an old Spaniard, and had been many years in this country. He professed a great liking to the English, but stoutly maintained that the Battle of Trafalgar was merely won by the Spanish captains having been all bought over, and that the only really gallant action on either side was performed by the Spanish admiral. It struck me as rather characteristic that this man should prefer his countrymen being thought the worst of traitors, rather than unskillful or cowardly. 18th and 19th We continued slowly to sail down the noble stream. The current helped us but little. We met during our descent very few vessels. One of the best gifts of nature, in so grand a channel of communication, seems here willfully thrown away. A river in which ships might navigate from a temperate country, as surprisingly abundant in certain productions as destitute of others, to another possessing a tropical climate, and a soil which, according to the best of judges, M. Bonplan, is perhaps unequaled in fertility in any of the world. How different would have been the aspect of this river if English colonists had by good fortune first sailed up the Plata! What noble towns would now have occupied its shores! Till the death of Francia, the dictator of Paraguay, these two countries must remain distinct, as if placed on opposite sides of the globe. And when the old bloody-minded tyrant is gone to his long account, Paraguay will be torn by revolutions, violent in proportion to the previous unnatural calm. That country will have to learn, like every other South American state, that a republic cannot succeed till it contains a certain body of men imbued with the principles of justice and honor. October 20th. Being arrived at the mouth of the Piranha, and as I was very anxious to reach Buenos Aires, I went on shore at Las Conchas with the intention of riding there. Upon landing, I found to my great surprise that I was to a certain degree a prisoner. A violent revolution having broken out, all the ports were laid under an embargo. I could not return to my vessel, and as for going by land to the city, it was out of the question. After a long conversation with the commandant, I obtained permission to go the next day to General Rolar, who commanded a division of the rebels on this side of the capital. In the morning, I rode to the encampment. The general, officers, and soldiers all appeared, and I believe really were, great villains. The general, the very evening before he left the city, voluntarily went to the governor, and with his hand to his heart pledged his word of honor that he at least would remain faithful to the last. The general told me that the city was in a state of close blockade, and that all he could do was to give me a passport to the commander-in-chief of the rebels at Chemis. We had therefore to take a great sweep round the city, and it was with much difficulty that we procured horses. My reception at the encampment was quite civil, but I was told it was impossible that I could be allowed to enter the city. I was very anxious about this, as I anticipated the Beagle's departure from the Rio Plata earlier than it took place. Having mentioned, however, General Rosa's obliging kindness to me when at the Colorado, magic itself could not have altered circumstances quicker than did this conversation. I was instantly told that though they could not give me a passport, if I chose to leave my guide and horses, I might pass their sentinels. I was too glad to accept of this, and an officer was sent with me to give directions that I should not be stopped at the bridge. The road for the space of a league was quite deserted. I met one party of soldiers who were satisfied by gravely looking at an old passport, 
and at length I was not a little pleased to find myself within the city. This revolution was supported by scarcely any pretext of grievances, but in a state which, in the course of nine months, from February to October 1820, underwent fifteen changes in its government, each governor, according to the Constitution, being elected for three years, it would be very unreasonable to ask for pretexts. In this case, a party of men, who, being attached to Rosas, were disgusted with the governor Balcarce, to the number of seventy left the city, and with the cry of Rosas the whole country took arms. The city was then blockaded, no provisions, cattle, or horses were allowed to enter. Besides this, there was only a little skirmishing, and a few men daily killed. The outside party well knew that by stopping the supply of meat they would certainly be victorious. General Rosas could not have known of this rising, but it appears to be quite consonant with the plans of his party. A year ago he was elected governor, but he refused it, unless the Sala would confer on him extraordinary powers. This was refused, and since then his party have shown that no other governor can keep his place. The warfare on both sides was avowedly protracted till it was possible to hear from Rosas. A note arrived a few days after I left Buenos Aires, which stated that the general disapproved of peace having been broken, but that he thought the outside party had justice on their side. On the bare reception of this, the governor, ministers, and part of the military, to the number of some hundreds, fled from the city. The rebels entered, elected a new governor, and were paid for their services to the number of fifty-five hundred men. From these proceedings it was clear that Rosas ultimately would become the dictator. To the term king, the people in this, as in other republics, have a particular dislike. Since leaving South America we have heard that Rosas has been elected, with powers and for a time altogether opposed to the constitutional principles of the republic. End of chapter 7, part 2